Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores the letters to the churches in Revelation and how they speak to us today. Let's jump right into today's teaching. Morning. Can I say to you this morning that Harriet and I were delighted to receive and to hear with you the news that the Barton family would be coming to Central. We are delighted to know that. And um, I'm sure when I, when I tell our own kids um, the next week or a few days or whatever, they'll say, so dad, does this mean you're going to retire again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I told someone I, was, I turned 78 this past week and they said to me that, did you know that Charles Stanley just died in, what was he, Atlanta? No, Dallas, Dallas, I think it was. He was 90. Oh. <laughs> anyway, but seriously, we are delighted to receive that news with you. We really, really are. I, people ask me what I've been doing these days. I tell them I'm, I'm a polyphilo pastor. They said, what? Polyphilo, I just go and fill in the holes and whatever it is. That's what I do. So. We're glad. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I will tell you, um, when people ask me what I am doing and I tell them that I've been the pastor of a church for over 50 years, um, I get I some strange replies. There was dead silence from one guy one day, and then he said to me, I have my grandmother's Bible at home. <laughs> I think it was the only religious thing he knew what to say, so whatever. Um, or one, one night a long time ago when we were in Calgary, we were actually leaving that church within a week, and so the, um, the, our living room was full of boxes and all that kind of stuff, and the phone rang, and uh, a young guy said to me, um, are you Tom Cowan? I said, yeah, I am. He said, uh, would you marry my fiance and me? I said, well, I don't know. We need a little bit more information before we get into that. I said, we're, we're in a church about 400 in Calgary in a community college, and uh, many of them were, were young adults and, and families and so on. Said, I said, do you come to our church? He said, no. And I said, well, uh, how do you know who I am? <laughs> he said, my name is Tim Cowan, and I'm above you at one, phone, one line in the phone book, and for the last eight years, I've been getting your phone calls. And he said, you're the only pastor I know. <laughs> but I will tell you sadly, when I tell people what I do, I often get a story from them about how the church failed them or hurt them in some way. And they may tell me that they don't mind Jesus, but forget about the church. They're done with the church. I'm going to share with you in a few minutes why we can't do that. In the opening chapter of Revelation, it says, Write therefore what you see, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks are this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. It is telling us about the place of the church and the plan and the work and the word of God. That really Christ K 
cannot be separated from the church. You can't just say, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. If you follow it, each line in the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is picked up and repeated as each church is introduced. It's a very intricate pattern telling us that Christ cannot be separated from the church. Each church holds its identity from the one who holds the seven stars. It also tells us that the church exists in a manner which cannot be understood solely in terms of sociology or culture or politics. It is a supernatural reality that exists only in terms of its relationship to Christ. And you cannot separate Christianity from the church. While the gospel is personal, it is not individualistic. It's about community. The gospel is about the creation of a people, a community of the cross. John also says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And from the book of Revelation, it's clear that angels always refers to supernatural beings, so that we have to assume that Jesus is saying, as we might, that there's a guardian angel over his church. So can we assume this morning that there is an angel over Central Baptist Church? who is charged with watching over us. When we come in and we gather and we worship and sing, angels are the unseen part of our congregation. They hover over us. They remind us that each gathering is not merely a human gathering. It has a spiritual, supernatural dimension. And so this morning we start a new series for the next seven weeks. It's called We've Got Mail, Letters from Patmos. And there's a study guide that you can pick up this morning. It goes along with that. I encourage you to do that so that personally you can do some homework and reading. Um, you can join a um, small group to share that, and that's, that will be picked up on, on Sunday morning. The first study we'll come to in just a moment is um, Ephesus, and it's a postal circuit, a postal route that goes round. I'm going to ask Tina to come read the scripture, and please would you stand as we read God's word. The scripture this morning is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Please follow along in your Bible or the sermon notes handout or the words on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has hear, ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We will see and we'll learn week by week that the, the background and the history, the culture of each city is very important. And Ephesus was probably the most important of the seven cities. It was situated at the mouth of a river. It commanded a great trade route. 
was one of the great seaports of the ancient world, and three major trade routes crossed at Ephesus. It was also known as what was called in those days a free city, meaning that Roman authorities had granted it the right to self-government. Roman troops were not garrisoned there. It had its own magistrates, its own assembly, and it was a center for Roman justice. Its greatest glory was the temple of Artemis or Diana. Diana was a place of sanctuary. If anyone committed a crime but could get within one bow shot of the temple, they were safe or they had sanctuary. As you can imagine, it became the home to some of the choicest criminals. It was also a center for religious superstition. Religion and magic were hopelessly intermingled in Ephesus. Ephesian letters were kind of good luck charms that were supposed to cure sickness and bring good luck to you. The Apostle Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than anywhere else, about three years. You can read about his ministry, Acts chapter 19, chapter 20. Also, you would know from the New Testament that one of Paul's major letters is to the church in Ephesus, in which he talks about the church and the plan of God. But if this church was running an ad for a new lead pastor, I think what it says might catch your interest. You might even want to apply for the job. It says in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 2, he says, I know three words, your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He says, I know your deeds. Kind of, you get the sense that when you joined this church in Ephesus, they had a job for you. Maybe it was quadra days or this or that or tech teams or something else. You really couldn't get involved in first, be a member of First Church without getting involved in ministry. The second word is toil. It's a very strong word in the Greek text. It means people at this church were willing to put their backs into things. The people were committed. The third one was perseverance. At Ephesus, people just didn't quit. They didn't look for a way out if they'd served for a year or whatever. They stayed and they worked at it till the task was done. I believe certainly in church life there's time to take a break. Don't get burned out. But these people were committed. And so the conclusion is, in verse 3, you have not grown weary. You really want to give this church an A for ministry. If this church was in North America, it would be running conferences. There'd be conferences for pastors and church leaders coming from all over to learn about their programs and taking home to their people um, how to get more volunteers and how to get people involved in ministry. This church really gets high marks. It's faithful to the truth. Verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You see, Ephesus was awash in religious syncretism, and cults just grew like weeds. The cultic temple of Diana cast a shadow over everything. It was not easy to stay true, uh, to be a Christian, to stay true to the faith against this kind of pressure. Paul, when he is leaving this church about 40 years earlier, this was his word to the Ephesian elders. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, he says, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. So, be on your guard. This church gets high marks and praise for its commitment to orthodoxy, 
for standing for the truth. You would really, I think, call this an exemplary evangelical church. Ministry is going on. Things are going well. People are committed to the truth. But Jesus, Jesus, who looks into the heart of the church, says this, I have this against you. Jesus, you see, is the ultimate church consultant. He sees behind the programs and the busyness. He searches for more than orthodoxy. And his diagnosis is simply this. It's a searing word. He says, you have lost your first love. So Ephesus is a picture of a church, any church. Churches become busy and proud, rigid, exclusive. And Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand from out of its place. So what do we, how do we understand this? I paint for you this morning, very simply, three concentric circles. The first one, the innermost, is the most important. It starts always with our love for God. That comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Hebrew it's called the Shema, which is the imperative of the Hebrew verb to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. Jesus said this was the first and the greatest commandment. That's the heart of it. So that's our first calling. We do that in response to, to our understanding that God is the one whose first love does. We don't initiate love for God. God always takes the first step. This is the gospel. God takes the first step towards us. Our love is a response. And God leads us in this dance as we follow his steps. Then the next circle moving out is, is our love for one another. John 13 says to us, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. This is how the city of Victoria will know, in that you love one another. And then as we move outward one more time, it be, love becomes incarnate in flesh and blood in our city for the world. We love our neighbors and we love our, our city, our neighborhood, through the power of the cross. It is not truth that makes a church attractive. It is love that makes a church attractive. So what kind of church do we want to be? There's a lot of ways to answer that. I gave you some last week. I'd like to answer it this way, and I've made up a kind of a new word to describe Central Baptist Church. The word is, we want to be an agapic church. It's from the Greek word agape. We want to be an agapic church. A church that loves God, loves one another, and loves our neighbors. Paul says to young Timothy, the goal of this commandment is love, agape, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So there's a profound warning in this letter to every church, especially, I think, within the evangelical community. You see, within every strength lie the seeds of our own destruction. So within the vigor and the energy and the passion of ministry lie the seeds of ruin. When churches become busy, when there's lots going on, the lights are on every night in the week, programs for every need, we face the danger of spiritual workaholism because ministry without the, the fuel of love simply degenerates into activity. There's the danger of spiritual pride. We can say, look at all we're doing. Look at our bulletins, look at our, look at our week, all of our programs, the lights are on every night of the week. And then comes spiritual burnout. Somebody someday just walks away. They just vanish. 
We wonder why. You see, ministry done without love becomes mere busyness, an activity that can erode into burnout. If you're unsure about that, listen to this well-known passage. If I speak the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and know all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I possess, if I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Service to God without love for God quickly becomes idolatry. There's also, we understand, danger in orthodoxy for its own sake. We are not hesitant to say that holding to the truth is vital for the days in which we live. We hear today a cacophony of spiritual voices calling us to believe whatever we want. Some of them are blatant lies, easy to recognize. Some are subtle distortions of the truth. We make no apologies as Central Baptist Church for our commitment to the scriptures. A steady, systematic study, book by book. I shudder. I will tell you, I shudder at the thought of Christians with certain churches whose minds are not fed or challenged, who are still, in a sense, in spiritual diapers. Their faith consists of cliches and choruses. A shallow, thoughtless Christianity I see as a disgrace before the Lord. Disgrace before the Lord. But orthodoxy without love breeds a rigid spirit. Orthodoxy without love breeds a spirit of exclusivism. It becomes narrow-minded legalism. It breeds ugliness. It breeds pride. The church becomes the frozen chosen. So you can have activity without love. You can have orthodoxy without love. But let's understand, please, also this morning, that the opposites are also dangerous. If you can have activity without love, there's also a danger of love without ministry. The other side of the coin, John says to us, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with deed and actions. If we have orthodoxy without love, then there's the danger also of love without orthodoxy, love without truth. Love is not a substitute for truth. It's not one or the other. Just as truth without love becomes pride, exclusivism. So love without truth degenerates into relativism and pluralism, which are the parents of heresy. John knows and sees the real condition of the heart. He sees the heart of the first church of Ephesus, a church that forgotten how to love. So Jesus calls us back to the center. He says three things. The first one is this, remember. 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 Can I say to you this morning, um, I know some of you have been widowed. Some of you are not married. So if I can just say to you this morning, if you are married, remember the first time you fell in love with a person who's your spouse. You could not wait to see each other. Do you know that we're told today 
some 50% of the marriages end in divorce? What gets us from one point to the other? It seems to me that the great majority of divorces is not a sudden affair. Rather, it's a silent, steady decline into carelessness and monotony. People are married and they just settle into a comfortable pattern. In the smallest of ways, we start taking one another for granted. The cards that we used to enjoy finding and write when we first met, they stop. We didn't really decide to stop, but a silent erosion ate away at the foundations of intimacy and care. Flowers stop coming. And very simply, we take people for granted. We stop doing those small acts that express love and kind words just seem to dry up. We never really decided to stop caring. Somehow we just grew careless. And carelessness quietly erodes our love. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love? The fun it was? Let me ask you then, do we do the same with God? Do we just settle into a comfortable rut with God? He's written us a love letter. Do we read it? Do we talk to him? Let me ask you, do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with God? Maybe it was at this church, I don't know. But do you remember how exciting it was? I've shared with you before. I grew up in a Baptist church in Glasgow in Scotland. Church was about three or 400 in size, fairly big for those days. We had a great youth ministry, about 100 young people. Now I'll tell you, we had no youth pastor. Churches couldn't afford that. They just paid for one pastor. So we had nobody like Eric to help us. We just did it ourselves. Young people formed a committee. And we got going. And we invited others and we arranged meetings on Sunday night after church. And slowly it grew and grew. And we had about 100 young people meet every Sunday night after church. I remember that this past week. It was so exciting. Those were the early days of worship. Sometimes one or two guitars, nothing electric. And the chorus that everybody was singing then was this. You remember, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Can you handle a little fun this morning? I'm an old guitarist. I don't play anymore. Um, I just, my fingers aren't nimble or something to do that. So I can't play anymore. I have an old guitar at home. Even my grandchildren won't let me play it. <laughs> but I remember that chorus this week. I'll give you the verses as we go. Do you want to stand and sing? Can you handle that? If you don't know the words, you'll get them pretty fast. A lot of us know it. You remember? 
I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No, the world behind me, the cross before me. 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 No turning back, no turning I have held on to that for 62 years. And the point is, the essential purpose of the work of spiritual remembering in Hebrew is not that we remember and we go back to the good old days, but rather we remember the vitality and the passion we experienced in those good old days, and we bring it to today. It's not an exercise in spiritual nostalgia. Rather, it is the joy of remembering and reliving. We'll return to that in a moment. And then we repent the word of Jesus. Sometimes we see that as a word of emotion. We're supposed to cry and weep. It's not a word of really emotion. It's a word of decision. Someone once said, it just doesn't mean we're sorry, but we're sorry enough to change. Repent means we rethink something. We go, we set our feet in a new direction. We come to an honest confession where things really are and we rethink them. We rethink our lives. We turn around and we set our feet in a new direction. We make a radical U-turn in some things. We will stop the slide. We will put an end to the carelessness. We will stop the silent erosion. We will cease the deterioration. Things can and things will be different. And then we do. We take action. Steps to change our habits, to get out of the rut. Now, these are not some easy how-to-do-it technique, but rather they form a spiritual process for the individual and for the church. There are times as individual Christians. There are times as pastors. There's times as lay leaders. There are times as people. There are times as a whole church, a central Baptist church. We have to come and remember and repent and take action. There is a time for the church to remember, not the good old days, but to remember the sacrifice, to relive the passion, to rekindle the commitment, to renew the vision, to reestablish identity, to re-energize the mission. Time for the church to make a U-turn, pivot its feet back to where it needs to go. There's a time always for the church to act, to make critical decisions that will bring it back to its first love. We have a final thought to come, but... My sense was this was a place to remember, is a place to pause. In the book of Deuteronomy, Paul tells his people, do not forget all the Lord has done. Do not forget, remember, remember, remember. So we come in a moment to kind of pause the service for a minute, a place to remember and to remember all that Christ accomplished on the cross. Do you remember when that became real and alive to you for the first time?
I do. I remember when I rose out of the waters of baptism. I remember when I fell in love with Jesus. Not for the good old days, but to bring the passion, the power at that time right into today. That is what refreshes us. The first time I took communion was the night I was baptized. That passion is still there, 60 odd years later. So much so that I just thought of this, in this flow, Harriet and I were at a wedding yesterday. We sat at the refreshment time with some folks and a man began to talk to me. He asked about who I was and what I did. And he said, I'm not a believer. I believe in science. That answers the questions of my life. I said, so what do you do about the metaphysical questions? I said, that's questions like, who are you and why are you here? And what are you doing? He says, I don't know. He says, I, I'm committed to reason. I said, so am I. Faith is not against reason. Faith takes us beyond reason. I'm still committed yesterday to the issues and the core truths of the gospel, talking to this man. I still remember a hundred young people saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I'm gonna ask the ushers if you to come and if you've not received one of the our communion cups this morning, can you just slip your hand up? They look for you. I'm sure that many of you watched, maybe all of you watched the, the coronation service yesterday from Westminster Abbey. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. People like CBC and CTV and CNN and a few other channels that I don't know probably spent millions and millions of dollars for the right for that to be aired all over the world. Right? Right? And you know what most of it was from Westminster Abbey? They heard the word of God. They heard statements of, ang of theology from the Anglican prayer book. They heard the Archbishop of Canterbury give a short sermon about the importance of leaders and monarchs are we are there to serve in the example of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. And in the middle of that service to millions and millions of people, they saw the Archbishop of Canterbury take a piece of bread and read the words of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Didn't you think that was brilliant all over the world? And he broke it. And Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he ate it. He took a cup of wine. This is his blood shed for you that we come to and faith in his blood to the cross. And all the world yesterday heard the words of Jesus. 
And all the world yesterday saw a man break bread and take wine and tell us what that meant and tell us what it was for. This is the sacrifice of Jesus. So this morning I invite you, as you open that, you see just a, um, a sliver of, of bread. As you take that bread in your hand this morning, can you remember, can you remember how much God has poured his love for you? And can you make that alive and fresh today, in this very moment, as you take that bread? And Father, we give you thanks for it. And we ask you to bring it to our lives today with all of the power and joy and relive all that this means for us this moment. Amen. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So likewise, as we take this wine, remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us and we bring it to our lives afresh again. When you drink this, can you fall in love with Jesus once again? That is what refreshes your soul. Can you do that and drink and remember? And the final word of Jesus to the church is this. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat it of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, you know that word. You see it every day. You see it every day in people's running shoes. You see it every day on their sweatshirts. You see it with a swoosh. The word is Nike. It's the cheer of the crowd as runners entered the arena to finish the race. The crowd was on his feet shouting, Nike, Nike, Nike. And the runners, tired lungs and weary legs are given fresh energy for the last stretch of the finish race as the crowd spurns them on. And so we are spurred on by the promise of Jesus that as we overcome, we'll receive a prize it's the right to eat of the tree of life. This tree was in Genesis, but the weight of it is barred and blocked. It appears again in Revelation, and the weight of it is opened for us by the blood of the Lamb. Would you stand with me, please? And the worship team will come. So the churches that are busy, 
churches that hold the truth. Jesus says, don't forget your first love. This morning, this moment, can you hold afresh your first love for Jesus? Do you know that in a few years, Central remembers its 100th anniversary? Can you imagine what the passion and the energy was then? Can you imagine what the vision was like then? Burning in people's hearts and lives a hundred years ago. And the point of remembering in Hebrew is, can we bring all of that fresh energy for this moment, for this day, for the years still to come? So in the life of the church, there's work and ministry to be done. We know that. We hold tightly to the line of truth. We know that, just as the Ephesian church does. No apologies for that. But may we never forget. May we never forget the passion of our first love for God and for Jesus. Because I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings, in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.